Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. So I want to take a quick poll this morning. How many of you uh, grew up in, in the city, more or less? Like a, a city like Renton or a little bit bigger? Okay, how many of you would say you grew up more in like a rural country area, small town, that kind of thing? Okay. Uh, how many of you grew up in Washington? All right. How many outside of Washington? Oh, okay, good amount. How many outside of the United States? Also a good amount. I love that. Okay. Uh, it's always, I'm always curious to know where people are from. Sometimes I ask that question just because I love to hear stories of how people got here. And even this morning, I was talking to somebody who recently moved uh, to the Renton area, and we we're just kind of sharing that, that little circle and how God leads us to different places. And for um, four years of my life, from ages of six to 10, so we moved as a, as a, as a family on average about every 18 months growing up, and not because my dad was in the military, um, actually because we were poor. Uh, so if the rent went up, we moved somewhere that was cheaper. Um, for about four years of my life, from the ages of six to 10, I lived in a really small community in Northern California in the Trinity Mountains. Uh, this town uh, was, was near to uh, a town of a thousand people, but it was about 10 minutes down the road. Uh, it was called Salyer. And the sign, if you were driving by on Highway 299, said Salyer, population 200. And so in this town, there was a post office and a store. And there was one church, one church there, and I still remember that church today. It was called the Salyer Wayside Chapel, and it was right off of Highway 299. Now, as you can imagine, the culture in this little mountain community was quite a bit different uh, than our own. In Salyer, nobody talked about traffic. They talked about fishing. No one was really that concerned about politics. They mostly just swapped stories of what kind of lion or mountain lion was on their property the night before. And you'd rarely actually ever hear people in this little mountain town say they were too busy. In fact, most folks were just grateful to be able to make a living. And so that was four years of my younger life. Uh, in this unique cultural kind of community in Northern California. You know, the story of God as it's recorded in the Bible doesn't take place apart from culture, but it takes place through culture. And if you've ever read the Bible, you realize right away that it was written in a time and a place that is very different than ours, very far removed. In Scripture, we see shepherds and kings, tribes and empires, strange cultural practices, and names that are hard to pronounce. When we approach Scripture today, we have to approach Scripture understanding as best as we can the context that it was written in, the culture, the day, the practices. And thankfully, for most of us, as we read Scripture, that context is, is pretty clear. We can kind of get clues from the text itself on what life was like back then when it was written. 
So you don't need to be a scholar or a historian to know that. But it's important that we recognize that it was written in a culture that is very different than our own. So recently, if you're just joining with us, we've been walking through a section of Scripture that was written in a time long ago in a place far away. And this section of Scripture was written to a young man named Titus. And we've already been given uh, quite a bit of context for what was going on in the world of Titus, in his culture. He was on an island, an island called Crete in the Mediterranean, which is a real place. And people live there today. And in the first century when he lived there, it was a uh, largely kind of pagan culture where they worshipped Zeus. And so as we have been walking through this letter, we've seen the, the challenges for this early church that was propping up in Crete. And last week, as we looked at this letter that was written to Titus, we saw why elders are needed in the church. And we're going to see that in more clearly today. We saw why godly leadership is needed. And the reason is, there's problems. There's problems in the church. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Titus chapter 1. It's a, about page 1030 if you have a blue pew Bible. If not, you can scroll and tap there pretty quick on your phone. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 is what we'll look at this morning. Titus chapter 1, 10 through 16. And I'll read this for you. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Again, this is just on the heels of talking about the qualifications for good leadership in the church. Verse 10 says, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So after laying out the purpose of, of Titus, the purpose of Titus is to establish good leadership in these churches on the island of Crete, giving the qualifications for who these types of leaders are to be. Now we get to the problem. The problem in Crete is there is some false teaching, or as I titled the message today, some bad directions. Have you ever followed bad directions from someone that you thought knew better? I've heard a few stories. I'll share one with you. There was a, a six-year-old girl that says, or a woman who says when she was six years old, she entered a 100-yard dash at her school's Little Olympics. And her 14-year-old brother, who she looked up to, advised her to do a couple of things to, to win the race. He said, Run like an ostrich. And so this six-year-old girl decided she would get up on her tippy toes 
and run straight-legged like an ostrich. And she finished dead last. Another man says about some bad directions, he says, As a rookie fireman, I was advised by the older firemen to start smoking cigarettes. They said it would acclimate my lungs to the smoke in a building fire. Again, bad directions. Or how about this one? A young couple grew hot peppers for the first time, and wanting to dry them out, they thought they would ask their Amish friend what to do, because, you know, Amish are good farmers. This Amish friend suggested they use the microwave to quicken the process. (laughs) So they took her suggestion, and they nuked the peppers. And within seconds, sickening fumes filled the kitchen, driving them out of the house, coughing and gagging. They basically pepper sprayed themselves. (laughs) Only later did they stop to wonder why they took the advice to use the microwave from someone who doesn't use electric appliances. (laughs) Amish people, right? Bad directions. Many of us have taken them from people that we thought knew better. And we see, as we just read in this passage here, there were people within the church on Crete who were giving directions to these new Christians that were bad. And so Paul is calling these people out. He's making it clear that what they're saying is not good. So what are some of these problems in Crete? Again, let's go to the culture that this text was written in. First century Greek island. And so Paul says this. He says, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So there's a couple of things here. One is we see that the, one of the purposes of these people giving these directions to the church is for their own benefit. And we can assume that it's probably financial gain in this case. And so that's a problem that's, that's, that needs to be called out in the church. Now, culturally, let me just explain briefly the circumcision group. Well, I won't get into details. This is Family Sunday, um, but you can talk about it with your kids later. But essentially, this was a Jewish group that said, in order to really follow Christ, you need to also follow all of these Jewish commands. And so what they were doing is saying, in order to be right with God, just belief is not enough. You have to do something, in this case, something physically painful for men, at least, to to identify with Christ. And Paul is saying that is not true. And so this is one issue that we see, one problem uh, that is making its way into the church through people that are giving bad directions. We also see that some of the problems with the teaching in the church comes from the culture. Crete is a a pagan culture. Uh, It's the birthplace of Zeus. And so, of course, it's understandable that in this new community of believers, there's going to be things from the culture that are incompatible with the message and the ways of Jesus. And so Paul calls this out. He says in verse 12, One of Crete's own prophets, and here he quotes them, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. 
This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. So Paul is quoting a prophet or a, potentially a poet from the Cretan culture. And he's basically saying, hey, these are some cultural distinctives of the island. And so we need to be aware when this type of mentality, this type of cultural um, attitude is entering the church because it is not compatible with who God is. Now, it sounds maybe a bit derogatory, but I'm guessing this is kind of just an accepted part of Christian culture. Yeah, that's who we are. Maybe you grew up in a family where it's like the family was really loud and argumentative, right? And you're like, yep, yeah, that's just how my family is. And so this is a, uh, these are cultural distinctives that were not compatible with this new community. It's interesting to note that in this, this prophet that Paul quotes, lying is one of those pieces. And if you look back up into the introduction of this letter, when Paul is introducing who he is and who God is, he says something very specific about God. What does he say? God who does not lie. So Paul, in introducing that, has in mind some of these distinctives of the Cretan culture. God who does not lie. He is different than what is culturally accepted, culturally part of where you live. But the real concern for Paul isn't so much about the culture out there, but what is being brought into the community of believers. You'll notice that while Paul acknowledges the overall cultural issues, what he's really most concerned about is the people in the community. So he's not saying go out and, and start condemning people for that. No, he's saying those that are bringing that into the church, rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they will be sound in the faith. So he cares about these people, and he wants to make sure that these things are checked. That there's an understanding of who God is and how we're to follow him. And this is clearly not an agree-to-disagree type of thing. These types of people are bringing things into the church that will pollute it and potentially destroy it from the inside out. So he talks about false teaching that's coming into the church through kind of Jewish-type beliefs. He's addressing the cultural issues. And then he brings it back to the problems in the church. Verse 14. So they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Jewish culture is not equal to Christian living, you could say that Paul was saying. The Jewish population, there is a Jewish population on the island of Crete. And because God chose to work through the Jewish people to bring salvation in Jesus, it seems clear that the Jews in Crete are elevating their cultural practices in a way that is actually clouding the good news of Jesus. Those non-Jews on the island of Crete are thinking, I must have to become culturally Jewish in order to be accepted by Jesus. After all, he came through the Jewish people. And so if you're a native Cretan that just became a Christian, things are, can get confusing pretty quick. 
It seems apparent that people are coming to these native Christians and saying, listen, if you really want to be good with God, then you need to be like me. Adopt my culture. Dress like me. We've seen this over the years in Christian missions where missionaries will go to foreign countries and they'll say, it's not just enough to believe in Jesus, but now you need to sing our songs, dress like we dress, learn our language, become whatever culture that that missionary came from. So whether it's circumcision or here's what you can and cannot eat or take your shoes off before you come into the house or don't drink coffee on the pews or root for the Seahawks over the Niners. Like all of these things are extra human commands that have nothing to do with the saving grace of Jesus. And oftentimes what the church does, and right from the beginning they're wrestling with this, is the good news of Jesus, the gospel, becomes more about instructions and less about an amazing announcement of mercy. Mercy. Realizing that it's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It's what Jesus did for us. And so this is the same type of thinking that Jesus had to deal with. In verse 15... Paul gives us an idea that one of the issues in the church is that there's this group of people who are always looking around at people to find fault. This, again, probably has to do with Jewish food restrictions and purification requirements, but it also may just be a general attitude. Oh, the way that they're dressing, the music that they're listening to, I don't like those things, let's make them religious. We'll come up with a religious reason to find fault with people And again, the same thing that Jesus had to deal with, a type of religious attitude that focuses on being right on the outside, but absolutely corrupt on the inside. And so Paul's words to them are clear. They're direct and they're pointed. He says they don't actually believe and their life shows it. Their actions show that they are unfit, as he says, for doing anything good. And this is in clear contrast to verse 8, where elders are to be someone who loves what is good. Isn't there a difference in our life when we're oriented toward something beautiful and something holy as opposed to something negative? And when Ben shared, just talking about what his mind was blown as they were traveling through our country, seeing the beauty of God. Oriented toward what is good, pointing the the people of God, to those things. And so this is a clear warning to Titus that these are the types of people you want to avoid. Those that are always looking to heap extra requirements, to look for the negative. And so this is one of the primary reasons that elders needed to be established for the churches in Crete. They need good directions, good teaching. They need moral leaders who aren't in it for themselves. They need people who love what is good and hold fast to the gospel of Jesus. So this is the scene in Crete. So here's the question for us. What warnings from Crete, from that church, are relevant for us today? Let's just share a few few of them. The first warning is to beware of people who use their influence in the church for personal gain. Beware of people who use their influence in the church for personal gain. 
The church, unfortunately, has story after story of leaders who lose sight of what it means to serve the church and instead try to get the church to serve them. We've seen it on the national stage with things like crazy televangelists who say, just give me a certain amount of money. I mean, give my ministry a certain amount of money. I mean, give God a certain amount of money. And then you'll be blessed. And so will I with a new airplane. They, they code it, they, they code it in religious reasoning, but it's all about them. So we've seen it on the national scale, scale, but we've also seen it locally. We had a church in the Seattle area called Mars Hill, where at one point, Mark Driscoll, the pastor of that church, told his staff he was the brand of the church. He was the brand of the, the church didn't exist. About him. And so, as we look at from Crete to Renton to Seattle, we see that this is clearly a historic problem. Leaders that use the church, their influence in the church for their own personal gain. It's clearly a historic problem, which means that it's a human problem. No matter what culture, no matter what technology is in place, no matter how much we have progressed this type of thinking is still an issue within the leaders of the church. And it's one that cannot be allowed to be present among the followers of Jesus. If you ever sniff it in me, call me out. If you ever see it in any of the leaderships here at Sunset Community Church, gently and firmly point it out. Because this is destructive to the church. So, Warnings from Crete that are relevant to us today. Beware of people who use their influence in the church for personal gain. A second one would be beware of people in the church who will add extra requirements to salvation. I want to be clear on this. We're talking about salvation. False teachers like to be the gatekeepers of salvation by adding additional steps to it. Oh, do you want to know God? Do you want to follow in the ways of Jesus? Well, you just need to do a couple more things before you can do that. But the message of Jesus is this. Do you want to know me? Do you want to follow me? Then come on. That's it. Come on. Follow me. Now, does this type of following of Jesus require an all-in step of faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you and me were to go for a hike in the mountains this afternoon, and I said, okay, follow me as we go up this trail, you wouldn't be like, well, maybe I will. I think I'm going to go this way instead. I'll see you up there. No, you fought, you'd follow me, right? It's the same thing with Jesus. Either you are following him or you aren't following him, but that's it. Jesus says, come and follow me. To be free from your addictions to understand your rebellion toward God, to know and be known by him. This is not any work that you can do. It's something that Jesus has done for you. And he simply says, follow me. Follow me for forgiveness. Follow me for freedom. And if anyone says otherwise, oh, well, first you need to get a haircut, or you need to have that tattoo removed, or you need to have kicked at least 51% of your addiction, then God will accept you. That's not the gospel of Jesus. 
Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love, his affection for you is there, and it's up to you to receive it and to follow it. Jesus forgave you before you ever asked for it. So why would he require anything of you to be in relationship with him other than you just saying yes? The only thing you have to do to follow Jesus is follow Jesus. His invitation, his work, his goodness and grace. Your yes. So beware. Beware of people who will add extra requirements to salvation. And then the other one that I think we can see from Crete is we need to be aware of cultural influences. We need to be aware of cultural influences. To think when we walk in the door on Sunday that we don't bring our culture into worship with us is ridiculous. (laughs) And while at one point we could probably say American culture was more closely aligned with Christian values, that's just no longer true anymore. And so when Paul opens up this letter by saying, God who doesn't lie, and then later points out that lying is a known trait of the culture, he's calling the people of God to be aware. Are we aware? Are we aware of the teaching of our culture? Are we aware of the bad directions that are being taught in our schools, through our media that we consume? Are we aware of these things? And here's the thing. When we look at culture, there's, I think, a paradigm that we need to understand. There are some things in culture that we can just receive as they are. They are good. There are other things in our culture that we can redeem. They are broken, but they can be fixed and they can be made good. And then there are other things in our culture that have no goodness about them at all. They can never be redeemed. They are inherently evil, and they need to be rejected. And so as we filter through the cultural narratives and teachings of our day, we need to understand some we receive, some can be changed and redeemed, and others simply have no place in the people of God. And so this is also why elders are important, because as we'll look at more next week, the role of elders is to teach what is good and true. That should always be the focus. So false teaching in the church, has always been a problem. And so there's two approaches we see Paul exhort Titus to take that I think are still relevant today. When we see this, when we see these behaviors and these bad directions in the church, there's two things that Paul says very clearly. Silence them and rebuke them. Look at verse 11. Those that are seeking their own gain, those that are putting elect. Uh, extra religious requirements, and in general causing trouble, they just need to be silenced, or as my mom would say, shut your mouth. There's no, there's no dancing around those things. If you see a leader that's, that's causing trouble in people's homes, that's looking for influence for himself, we're not going to pat you on the back and say try harder. We're going to say shut up. Stop it. There's no place for that here. In verse 13, we see, so that's the silence. In verse 13, we see the rebuke. Those that are letting the culture influence their faith instead of their faith 
influence the culture or the way they interpret the culture, those people need to be rebuked. What does a rebuke look like? It could look like this. Hey, friend, let's compare what you're saying to the teachings in Scripture, to the ways of Jesus. You're walking with them. It's not a cutting off. It's not, it's not even a silencing. It's a conversation pointing them to what is true so they might see clearly. So that, as Paul said, verse 13, that they might be sound in the faith. And this is, to be honest, we all need this. We've all believed things from our culture that we've brought into our faith that are not compatible with the ways of Jesus, whether it's political things, whether it's uh, things that are being pushed at us through the media, whether it's things we just are permissive about. Oh, that's not that big a deal. We all need to be rebuked. We all need to be brought to, to right understanding of the gospel so that we might be sound in the faith. So let's be aware, church family, as we walk together, as we grow together, of where these influences come from and how we're to approach them, in some cases silencing them and in others rebuking them. False teaching is never good news. Bad directions never result in good things. It makes us feel like we need to do something more to be saved, and it often shifts the focus off of Jesus to the person giving those directions. But the gospel of Jesus is good news. It frees us from our attempts to be good enough, and it leads us to the truth of Jesus. And in Jesus, we find the truth that God loves us right now where we are, and his invitation to find hope and peace and rest for our souls is one yes away from being fully true in our lives. So the question today is, will you follow him. Will you follow Jesus? If so, the only thing you need to do is follow him. Just to say yes, to take that step. And so this morning, we're going to reaffirm our desire to follow Jesus through the taking of the bread and the juice. Remembering Christ's body that was broken on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin. His blood that was shed on our behalf. Jesus did all of this work so that we could be right with God. And so I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And how we typically take communion together at our church family is whenever you are ready, you can come forward and take of the bread and the cup. But this is only for people that have said yes to Jesus. It makes no sense to take something that represents what Jesus did if you aren't all in with Jesus. And if you're a believer that's, that's been wrestling with things right now, I even encourage you, take a moment before you come up. Reaffirm your relationship with God. Thank him for his continual forgiveness in your life. And then rededicate yourself anew as we take these together. So Father, this morning we thank you for the reminder of, of what the gospel is. It is not a book of instructions to try and get ourselves right, but as a declaration of mercy that you have given to us. And so we say yes and amen as we take of the bread and of the cup this morning.
thanking you for your grace, your favor that we didn't deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.